0: What's really going on? Those questions get asked in a number of different contexts, religious, philosophical, scientific. And they generate a whole Variety of answers, of different kinds of answers, depending on what context they're asked and answered in. That word really carries so much weight. can be asking for reasons. Why did you really turn down my invitation to the party? Or it can be asking for causes. A stick looks bent when it's submerged in water, but is it really bent or is it straight? And it's just the function of the fraction of the water that it looks bad. The word really can open up this great gap between appearance and reality. And it asks us to look at what kinds of explanations or meanings we give to things or that we're looking for. The difference between reasons and causes is often blurred. And it's said that one of the characteristics of the ancient world was that the concept of a person was not confined to human beings, but personhood was distributed through the whole natural world and the supernatural world as well. What has been called the enchanted world was a world in which the actions of trees and natural objects and animals and the weather might be understood in terms of reasons. Some of these natural phenomena were personified as gods. And that personification sort of legitimized the sense of giving reasons, motivations for why things happened the way they did. one way to describe the onset of modernity, the Enlightenment, was the disenchantment of the world and the search for pure material causes for things that had hitherto been described in terms of the reasons of the gods or God. in a medieval world, things happened the way they did because they were part of God's will or God's plan or the order of the world that God created and kept in motion. But with a scientific age, we look for a different kind of explanation Wanted purely material causes for things. And one of the ways science started talking about explanation that was different was it wanted an explanation that was based purely on facts that were not dependent on how things appeared to us. And it sort of asked, is that kind of description of the world possible? At a very basic kind of level, it would say, if you want to be scientific you can no longer describe an object in terms of its color, its smell, whether it's soft or hard, because those kinds of words have meaning only in terms of our particular sensory apparatus. The world itself has no color. Color is something that creatures with eyes attribute to objects the same thing with smell something that's hard or soft is dependent on what our particular tactile sensation is like and so there was an effort to try to describe things stripped of any kind of dependence on our uh, our own observational apparatus. And that's part of what we see uh, being engaged in this final chapter we're discussing by Galen Strawson. Because a group of neuroscientists and philosophers got the idea that to have that kind of pure description of things. We should say that things like thoughts and feelings or consciousness are like colors and smells tastes. They're not really things in the world, but they're artifacts of our particular physical sensory apparatus. And so they would say, instead of talking about thinking, we ought to find a way just to talk about brain states because we can describe brains and what's going on in them electrochemically without any reference whatsoever to our own subjectivity and our uh, you know, sense of how the world appears to us. And what Strauss uh, is objecting to in a way is the idea that once we determine or think we've determined that there's this neurochemical level where thinking is really going on, that in some sense it makes sense or is possible to stop talking about thinking or consciousness uh, or any of those uh, kinds of uh, subjective experiences. It's as if we can eliminate that whole kind of language from our vocabulary because now we know what's really going on. And what we are uh, confronted with is this strange dichotomy between what seems to be an unobjectionable scientific description of people and brains, perfect, you know, purely in terms of physical causality. The description seems perfectly plausible at that level. But then there's sort of this seemingly nonsensical consequence. Of trying to eliminate our talk about consciousness, feeling, subjectivity, as if that was simply an illusion that we can do without. From the scientific point of view, it's like saying stop using the language of God wills it once we understand the physical causes of things once we've got the physical explanation, we can stop using that outmoded language. And it's as if we think we can carry that over uh, to language about ourselves and our own experience. Now, the way this is connected to our practice in Buddhism and why I think this whole discussion is relevant is that we encounter the same kind of question about what's really going on uh, in Buddhist discussions about the self. How often have you been told that the self does not exist? What does that mean? Well, there's a way in which it's very parallel to the idea that what really exists are brain states, and thoughts are just sort of our subjective experience of brain states. The Buddhists would seem, or some of them would seem to be saying, there is no such thing as a self. We just imagine there is one. We're deluded. It's just an appearance. What really is going on is emptiness and interconnection. There are no things at all. So why don't we stop talking as if they're things? Why don't we stop talking as if there is a self when we know there isn't really one down there inside? And there is the same kind of, I would say, smug satisfaction that the neuroscientist has in saying There's only brain states. There's no such thing as consciousness. You get in these certain kinds of uh, Buddhist dialogues where they smugly can assert, we really know what's going on. There's no self. All you ordinary people are walking around thinking you're somebody. (laughs) But we know better. The dilemma is that you quickly bump up against the impossibility of uh, not using the language of the self, of meaning, of plans, of motivation, of past and future. How can you go about your business day to day without using the language of the self, I'm doing this, I want that, that happened to me, could you get through a day without any of that, I'd like to see you try, so how are we supposed to put these things together? I like to keep coming back to Wittgenstein and his take on perspectives. And I like telling the story about, you know, him asking a colleague, why did people persist for so long and thinking that the sun revolves around the earth? The colleague said, you know, but Wittgenstein, that's, that's just how it looks. And Wittgenstein said, but how would it look if the earth revolved around the sun? It would look exactly the way it does. Now, even when we know that the earth is really going around the sun, It looks like the sun is moving in the sky around the earth. What would it look like if there was no self? What would it look like if everything was really empty? What would it look like if everything was interdependent? Well, it would look exactly the way it does now, because it is. It is exactly the way things are already. Things are already empty. There already is no self. Everything is already interdependent. So the world we see exactly manifests those truths, the very things that we thought are hidden, are on constant display. This is how a world of impermanence and interconnection looks. We think that our understanding is going to reveal some hidden secret. but nothing is hidden. Life as it is, is the teacher because life over and over again, every moment, can't help but teach impermanence, can't help but teach interconnectedness. They are always on display. Now, sometimes we see it that way and sometimes we don't. The other illustration Wittgenstein was fond of was the duck-rabbit illusion. Sometimes we see the duck, sometimes we see the rabbit. Sometimes we see no self, sometimes we see self. Nothing has changed. The figure is exactly the same. Sometimes it's useful to talk about rabbits. Sometimes it's better to talk about ducks. It depends on where you are and what you're trying to do. Sometimes it makes sense to talk about no self. If you're trying to Describe a reality of impermanence and interconnection from a certain point of view. But other times it's completely necessary, inescapable, improper to talk about the self. It is how we are in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a mistake. We can be missing something if we only see rabbits and never see ducks. but one is not hidden, they're always both there. Self or no self, which is it really?